Kate Ducharme and band, the great music. And yeah, I got it wrong. I don't know what I was thinking. Well, I do know what I was thinking. I think we did this. I think we did uh, the other song uh, last week, and it fits really well with this week. So I was thinking we were still doing it, uh, which was not what we agreed on. We agreed on doing the one that we did do, which is nice. I'm glad somebody's on top of things. So um, the master was talking to her group of students, and she said, enlightenment means knowing precisely where you are at any given moment, which is not an easy task at all. Enlightenment is being awake enough to know exactly where you are. And then she told them of a popular scholarly friend who was even in her late 70s and 80s, she was often invited to dozens of functions to enlighten those around her. Now once this master told her students, once this friend of mine, she said, was at a function where the others looked at her, the others gathered around and said, how many functions are you involved in this week? And she said, this scholar said six, but not taking her eyes off this little notebook that she was holding, still looking at it, saying six. And so they said, well, what are you doing now then? Are you looking for where you are to go next? And she looked up and said, no, I'm trying to figure out where I am. Stage models are inherently short-sighted in many ways. They don't fit everybody. And yet they provide, as I said, a kind of framework. Some may feel a rudimentary or old kind of, this, this may feel like kind of rudimentary or old news to you, but I think that if we look at these and see them for sort of what their essence is, that we might find ourselves, or certainly we might think of folks we know, or even churches we have been to, where maybe where we left before coming here, finding 11.11. And we'll recognize something about the stage. Now, last week, can we throw up this first slide, please? Hey, Jack. So throw up this first slide. Say, kind of keep your eyes on it because we're going to be moving through here pretty quick. Okay. So this first stage, the simplicity, is basically oriented towards dualism. We talked about this kind of dualism last week a little bit. But just to spell it out a little bit more, it's kind of what we inherited as kids, what Piaget would call the concrete stage in our learning. Basically, things are very obvious, very fixed. They're right or wrong. They're left or right. They're yes or no. And then it kind of spells itself out as we get more and more involved in the community. We begin to differentiate between us and them because those, those folks don't think like us. And then we start thinking in terms of right and wrong. And it's interesting as you go through all of these stages and think about your own life where you are, sophisticated as you are in this group, as enlightened as we are, are there some people we look at and we're just convinced they're wrong. And then the question, yes, yeah, some of you are laughing. Okay, thank you. That's an honest response. So some of you, I mean, you might even realize what we might not realize is that is there, do we in fact need somebody to be wrong in order for us to be right? And that's the bigger question that I think we have to ask in all of these stages or wherever we find ourselves in our faith development is that challenge, just as Sharon was talking about, which was kind of nice. I liked how you, you broke that open for us here, that we find that place where sometimes we come almost, we're not intending to, but we're coming kind of weaponized. You know, we're armed with our concrete ideas. 
and uh, or even our ambiguous universal spacey ideas. We're still clinging to them as if they're something. And then we find that we're at this confrontation and we find ourselves in this uncomfortable space. Stage one simplicity is basically, there's no such thing as that uncomfortable space. We live with these concrete answers around us. We listen to the authorities above us. It's top down. It's mostly what we inherited as kids. But a lot of folks in a lot of churches are still in stage one faith. Right and wrong, basic black and white, insiders and outsiders, those who are included and those who are excluded. And the Bible is often taken as quite literal, which is kind of challenging because there's a lot of things, in fact, that aren't taken quite literal for those who take it quite literal. But that's, that's beside the point. We'll get into dissonance in a minute. But that, that idea that, that um, we, have, we know exactly what we believe, and therefore there's nothing that can challenge us. And when anything does challenge us, we have an answer for that. And if it's not an answer from what we've learned already, it's, we just kind of say it's the devil, or it's evil, or it's temptation, or we need to get back closer to God about it. So stage two, I mean stage one, let's throw up the next one, is this idea that everything is known, or knowable, and there are answers for every question. When I, was in, um, when I was in my teen, my adolescent years, I attended uh, a Bible church where I was saved, had my conversion experience. It was totally accidental. I was standing in the crowd at a trailer park in a Baptist church inside a trailer. You know, it was converted. I was 13. I really wanted to be there with my friends. And then they were having the altar call at the end with, the, you know, Amazing Grace. Or no, no, it was Just As I Am. That was the one they were singing. Yeah, Just As I Am. Some of you are going like, come on now, Tom. There's no grace about it. <laughs> so Just As I Am. And it was in, five, you know, number 10 or 11th verse. And the woman next to me started elbowing me. And she said, wouldn't you like to go down and say hi to the pastor? And I saw people standing up in front. And people were standing there, and they were kneeling, and he was, you know, doing things to them, and, you know, and then, and then I, she kind of kept elbowing me. Wouldn't you like to go down and say hello to the pastor? And I'm like, I guess that's what new people do, you know, because I was a visitor. So I went down there, and then by the time he got down the line, I saw people were crying. People were, were, were mumbling. You know, there was all this stuff going on, and I thought, I have no idea, but I want to be there, right? I want to be with my friends. And so I start to kind of get, I try to get teary-eyed. I really do. And, and, and the pastor finally comes to me, and I'm just, I'm, a, I'm at a loss for words. And he says, son, um, what's your name? I said, Tom. He said, well, Tom, why are you here? And I just was kind of blank, and he said, Tom, why are you here? And I said, Pastor, I don't know, but she told me to come down here. And he prayed for me, and I was, you know, and he said, if you'll repeat this prayer after me, and then you'll figure it out later on. And so I did, and I stayed with the church for a while, and I stayed with that community because I like the kids, right? And so I ended up there, and then eventually I ended up at the Bible church here in Fort Worth. And then I ended up in college going to InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And all of these groups were designed to sort of remain uh, kind of uh, enclosed and then learn more completely the doctrines that you were kind of learning from the very beginning. So simplicity then moved into this area of the next one, the next one here. It moved into this area of sort of confirming basic beliefs. And the primary motivations, if you were listening to my story, were what? The desire to belong, the desire to have connection, 
And then, of course, you want to be right. You don't want to be seen as wrong. And so that begins what becomes a long journey that has been already entrained and ingrained neurologically. You see how that happens? And I'm not saying this is right or wrong or bad or good. I'm saying it's a path, a pattern, which we find ourselves on that in time runs into some problems. And those problems are called doubt, questions. But more than that, it's called dissonance. Now, I'm going to take a quick aside here to talk about dissonance because dissonance is something we often toss around, but we don't really think about just how profound this experience is. A guy named Festinger, a psychologist, I think it was back in the 60s, I believe it was. I'll leak over at Todd every now and then, our resident professor of psychology, and he'll just go like this, and I'll go, okay, well, that was close to that. Or he'll not. In fact, we were talking earlier, and he says this week he happens to be teaching on dissonance. So that's really fun that we had that connection. But cognitive dissonance is this idea that people, that scientists were beginning to discover that we react to certain things with a kind of anxiety. And then we'll do strange things like um, contradictory kinds of behaviors and statements in light of what just happened. And why would we do things like that? Like you're thinking about all those people in that other party, that other political party, like the Democrats. Or maybe it's the Republicans. I won't say which party. But you're thinking about those other people. Or maybe you're thinking about those other people in those churches. Or maybe you're thinking about that person you just visited with, and you're thinking, how in the world could they think like that? How in the world could somebody believe that? How in the world would somebody not believe in vaccinations? How would somebody deny the Holocaust? How could somebody do this? How could somebody do that? We have all these kinds of things in which we sort of make these blanket judgments, and then we go, I just don't get it. But the truth is, we do it too. We all experience dissonance, but we all respond to it a little differently. So what is dissonance? Dissonance is when our ideas or our deeply held convictions or beliefs or something we believe about something is suddenly confronted. It's challenged. It's maybe even contradicted. And so we experience this internal dissonance. Now, it happens very quickly because we're not thinking about it. And we immediately do one of two things. We immediately become defensive. We change the subject. We might be a little more awake, like Sharon was talking about, and we might actually stop, step back, and take a breath and try to see what else is here. But that takes some practice because we've been neurologically entrained over years, conditioned to react to certain things. There is no God. God is dead. Can you imagine that statement in the 1960s when it first came out on Time Magazine? I think it was Time Magazine. And it came out and said, God is dead. Can you imagine the reaction? All the dissonance that immediately went into defiance, into anger. And it didn't really even understand what the statement was about. It's just that reaction. Dissonance is when we're confronted with something uncomfortable and we react to it. So Festinger, who was this psychologist, had this great experiment that he did, and it was really kind of fun. I used to do these experiments when I was in psychology in undergrad. I, I, would, I would go for these, you know, get paid $2 an hour or whatever it was back in the 70s. Well, here's what Festinger did. He divided into two different groups, and he had them both doing the same exercise. They were both to turn a slight knob, a little knob, just turn it slightly to the right a couple of times, and then they were to turn it to the left another time, and then back to the right, and then to the left. And they were given just a sequence of turning 
this knob and turning it back. And it was quite simple and quite tediously boring. And they were to do this for, I don't know, maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes even. And then what he did was to one group he said, now, I'm going to pay you all $20 an hour to do this. Is that okay? And they were like, yeah. And then they told the other group, I'm going to pay you a dollar an hour to do a dollar. Uh, I, I guess it was probably for every five minutes or something, but I'm going to pay you a dollar to do this exercise. And they said, well, all right. Now, he didn't tell the groups what they were each being paid. Now, afterwards, what he had told them is he said, now, I, I need you to convince this next group how exciting this activity was. So that when they come in, they're going to really be looking forward to this same thing. And I'm paying you $20 to do this, and, and is that going to be okay? And they said, all right, yeah, I can do that. And then, then he told this to the group being paid $1. I need you to convince the next person to do that they're going to be doing this task. I need you to convince them how much fun it is and how, much in, how interesting it is. Both groups did that. Both groups spoke to it. In fact, one group who was with the dollar group said, he, he, he was telling some person, and the person said, no, 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 I just heard about this from somebody last week that did this experiment. They said it was really stupid and boring. And the guy that was paid a dollar said, no, 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 no. I, they were doing a different experiment. This one is fascinating. It really is interesting. Okay. So they did that. Now, after the experiment was over, Festinger talks to each group. And he talks to the group that was paid $20. And he says, what did you think about this exercise? What did you really think about it? The one that had to sell it to the next group. And, and what the students would say things like, it was the stupidest activity I ever did. I hated it. Then they went to the group that were paid $1 to convince the others. What did you think about it? Well, I actually got to kind of learning something from it. I mean, after a while, I started thinking, you know, this is kind of giving my hands some exercise. I wondered if it didn't even improve my tennis game a little bit. They started rationalizing how much that exercise was meaningful to them. Now, what Festinger discovered was, is that these people who had been paid $20 to do something and basically lie, were willing to go ahead and admit the truth about it later because, well, they'd been paid for it. I mean, I got paid pretty good to do this lie. I'm, I'm all right with that. But the people that were paid a dollar suddenly had to make up. They had to realize to themselves, they had to justify to themselves, they had just lied about the stupidest activity ever and only for a dollar. And it was actually really nice. So they, they had to kind of make up something in order to make the dissonance balance out. You see how that works? People will do anything sometimes to deal with the dissonance. We'll convince ourselves, we'll deny things, we'll, we'll reject and just completely abandon things. We will do all sorts of things to convince ourselves that it's the right thing. Especially if we're experiencing some level of anxiety or discomfort. And this is where these uh, things come in that are our primary motivations. Because think about it. What's the motivations for going to church for so many people? Well, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I know you want to be good. I know you want to be good people. And this, I'm just talking about in universal in general. Your reason for being here, I still haven't figured out. Because this is a really strange environment. <laughs> but I think that's part of why you're here. 
is this openness. We'll get to that at the end. But, but I think one of the things that we, we find ourselves going to, to church communities like this are because we want to belong. We want to have that connection. That's what we were talking about last week, the one thing, one most important thing. We want to find connection. We want to belong. But there's also fear, fear of mortality, fear of not belonging, fear of not having friends, fear of being wrong. With our kids, we're afraid of the wrong influences. We want a good community for our kids. Fear is a primary motivator in a lot of what we do early on with church. And because fear is a neurologically very basic, profound part of who we are uh, neurologically, then it gets entrained pretty quickly and easily. And so we pretty much just go along with community because it's meeting that basic need that we came to in the first place. But when it stops meeting that, when the dissonance gets too strong, we have too many questions. We see our friends, because of their sexual orientation, are being suddenly rejected or excluded. And we never knew that was part of the doctrine here at this place. And so now those questions are coming up. Or we find out, wait a minute, women can't be preachers in the church? I mean, all of these different things start to raise questions. And it's no longer about knowing the right doctrine. Now it's about what I'm experiencing here. This new dissonance that's challenging my basic sense of humanity and what it means to be human and love one another, regardless of whatever the doctrine is that you've been talking about, now this dissonance is profound. And so then we move into stage two. And stage two is the next slide here, please. Stage two is complexity. And basically stage two is there are answers to all of the questions. So we try to get back into it more deeply. I joined University Christian Fellowship. It was all about something called apologetics. It was all about trying to define and defend those basic doctrines that I had a lot of questions about. And they had a lot of good answers. Most of the answers made were based on one assumption, or at least one or two major assumptions, which was the first assumption that I learned about the Bible being literal, whatever it says, has to be true. Because it's literally the word of God. So let's start there, right? So that's, that's how it began. And then from that point on, it became kind of a series of various convoluted and circular kinds of arguments and reasoning. And then trying to sort of dodge certain difficult areas of history or, or difficult areas of theology. And the challenge then was when the questions continued to come. So if... Simplicity is doubt is faith before doubt. If simplicity is all about locking in, lockstep, and faith before doubt, complexity is the beginning of pre-doubt. Because when those questions come up, like I had mentioned, those issues of disconnection with my friends or rejection of my friends or rejection of my own life because I'm divorced or maybe I like to drink. There's a wonderful story that, that uh, Brian McLaren tells in the book and where he's saying, you know, I knew this woman that came up to me after one of the classes. Actually, it was her husband. I knew him well, but she came up and he said, he looked at me and he said, you know, my wife, we used to belong to the Baptist church, but then the preacher had an affair and we just got all upset with the whole church, and we left, and we joined a, a, a Presbyterian church. But then when I got to the Presbyterian church, I found out that I wasn't, I, I wasn't allowed to drink because they weren't going to drink in, the Presbyterian, in that church. And so I left that Presbyterian church, and I ended up joining a Pentecostal church. 
And he said, my wife was really the one that was interested in this because she was looking for that experiential aspect of it. And so she joined the Pentecostal church. But then after being in the Pentecostal church, she didn't like the way in which the preacher was interpreting the scriptures. And so we ended up in a Methodist church. But she said the Methodist preacher was doing same-sex weddings, and this was back in the, in the 80s, was doing same-sex marriages in private. And when I found out about that, I couldn't abide by it. I confronted him because it was literally, it was in the scriptures, not in a, uh, uh, unapproved, it was wrong according to the scriptures, etc. And so I left that church, and now my, the guy said, now me and my wife, we don't go anywhere. And he said, I guess my wife, maybe me too, we just didn't see the point of it. So that's what happens to us when we try to move from simplicity to complexity and we start running into these dissonances that become too pronounced. Especially when they revolve around one simple thing, which is me. They, they, we run into these challenges with my, what, 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 my comfort, my anxiety, my beliefs, and then anybody else I can get to believe like me or find that believes like me. When it challenges that enough, we abandon ship. Not because that's our only option, but because that becomes the easiest thing. I think it was a, there was a Greek philosopher named Protagoras 2,000 years ago who said, man is the measure of all things. And what he meant by that was this idea that we tend to use as our gauge, as our measurement, what I believe, what I think, what I feel. And then we look for people who are like-minded like feeling, like uh, belief. And then when those start to get challenged, we find someone else. It takes a lot to kind of overturn these basic neural, basic simple kind of neural uh, 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 entrainments, these neural conditioning. But when we do find it, then we start having to deal with the, comp the problems of complexity. Let's go to this next slide here as we wrap it up. Most people in churches remain in stage one or two, or going back and forth between them. The Methodist church could be said to be a stage two church. It also has the potential for being something much more ambiguous, mysterious, embracing, and uh, questioning. Ergo, that's why we're here. The Methodist church actually was founded on a very stage two idea, complexity, learning, studying, it was, it was based on this idea of combining scripture with traditions and experience and reason, what's called the quadrilateral. And that whole fourfold norm provided a vehicle for exploring things more deeply, learning more. It doesn't get rid of the dissonance, though. The dissonance is something we have to deal with. There's no real answer for cognitive dissonance other than courage. You see that? There's really no answer for cognitive dissonance. It will come where you least expect it. It will come to the most liberated and open-minded individual, and they suddenly have to figure out, how do I face this without defensiveness, rejection, looking for like-mindedness, or retreating back to something simpler? It takes courage. And then the question is, how long can you stay with it? So we get to this last slide. I entitled this sermon, When Getting to Right Goes Wrong. 
because that's really what complexity invites us into. Most of us in here would probably say the reason why we are here is because we've experienced a time in our life where something created a lot of dissonance for us. And we needed to find a path that operate, that opened up and invited us to explore that dissonance in a place of acceptance and non-judgment. And so we do that here. But that's not the end game because now we're in this place that's what we're going to talk about next week which is perplexity. And perplexity is not necessarily a fun place to be, unless you're a four on the Enneagram, <laughs> which I am, and most of you are not. And as my wife tells me sometimes when I'm pressing for an issue and going, come on, let's take this to its logical conclusion, and she looks at me and she says, Tom, not everyone is a four. And I get that. It's really hard sometimes to push past this dissonance. One of my favorite, favorite little, um, you guys can come on out. Yeah, because I'm going to finish up right here. One of my favorite, favorite little Zen Cohen um, haikus came from a poet by the name of Basho who wrote, my barn having burned down, I now have a much clearer view of the moon. 